Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daily Friend Wrap. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, joined today by Saragon. Let's get into the news of today. And the first one is uh, we've seen a story where the South African Police Union has once again called for the killing of police officers to be declared treason. So the South African Police Union says that uh, murder of police officers is getting worse by the day in South Africa. There have been recent murders of cops in the Western Cape, Gauteng, and Pumalanga, and KZN, just in the last week. Um, three officers were killed in a, in a gunfight last week, Friday, uh, and there was also a murder of a police officer on Sunday. Um, and the crime stats show that between the 1st of April and the 30th of June, 31 police officers were killed in South Africa. So being a police officer is very dangerous, and the spokesperson for the South African Police Union says even in this quarter, we continue to see growing numbers of police officers who are being murdered on and off duty. And as a union, we are really not taking kindly to that. In our call for police killings to be declared treason, we remain resolute on it. Now, um, one obviously, I think, sympathizes very strongly with uh, the emotions behind this, which is that, you know, police are, the police who are doing their jobs go out there every day. They face a very difficult situation and many of them are being murdered. Um, And yet... This, I don't think Sarah is really going to do much to fix anything. Uh, firstly, it just seems kind of wrong to, to apply treason in this case. Um, but more than that, we, we often see there's a whole sort of category of, of discussion around the crime problem in South Africa. People say, uh, why can't the police torture criminals? Why can't we have the death penalty? Why can't the police execute people? We've seen our, our police ministers even say things like, you must shoot to kill, you must grab the criminals and crush their balls, lots of stuff like that. But it's done very little to actually solve the problem. Um, and I think that this discussion distracts us from the real things that need to be done to fix the, pro- the, the, the problem with policing in this country. Uh, do you agree with me? You know, we keep going around in this. There is a certain qual- quality, can I put it this way, to a policeman being murdered. I mean, it, it's really it's a, an attack on the state. It's an attack on those who are meant to protect the, the, the state. And to that extent, um, anyone found guilty of murdering a policeman, uh, you know, should without a doubt have a very serious uh, penalty punishment levied against them. Um, but to conflate the killing of policemen as far as treason, um, I mean, treason is is... is is incredibly, incredibly serious, and it has to do with the undermining of the state. Now, while one may say that, you know, the ongoing killing of policemen has a negative impact on on security of the state, the biggest problem with the South African state is that the state of policing from the highest authorities, the the the, the management of policing, that one suspects the training that involves policing, and all the corruption that's so easy to 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 do and isn't really being dealt with. It's, it, for me, it mostly comes down to the most senior levels, being the ministers and the uh, police commissioners, and they have not acquitted themselves at all well over the last few years. It's not an easy area to get to get right, but then nothing we're suffering from is easy to get right. And if you want to, if you want to safeguard the uh, the police, you've got to make policing all round better, um, including. The investigation, so that you find you, you catch who did it, who did it, and you caught you catch them, you prosecute them, and you imprison them, without improving all those enormous basics. You can have as much treason as you like; nothing's going to change. 
Exactly. Uh, you know, making the penalties harsher, allowing the police to, to be more aggressive and more brutal, it's really not going to do anything except, I suspect, just um, increase the number of people who are innocent who get caught up in things like police brutality. We need to decentralize the police force. We need to weed out the criminal and corrupt elements from the police force. We need to train more police officers and we need to properly equip them uh, and, the, and the justice system in general so that crimes can be prosecuted to their end. And then once we've sorted out those basics, we can maybe revisit uh, what you know, what penalties, what laws, what things in the system should change. Yeah. But I think that we're going to go absolutely nowhere unless we get those basics of policing uh, uh, right. And um, I think that this will just is a distraction. I, I just think we'd be horrified at the extent to which corruption occurs in the police at from all levels, you know, from the bottom to the very top. We would yes. absolutely be mortified. And like most things, you know, cr- corruption rots things. Exactly, exactly. All right, let's move on to our next story. And there has been a joint statement put out by the president of Nigeria, Ola Tinubu, and uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, who have uh, stressed a desire to have greater economic growth and cooperation um, between the two countries, between Nigeria and South Africa. Uh, they're both in New York at the moment attending a United Nations meeting. Um, Uh, The president of Nigeria said, we can collaborate in a mutually beneficial way that enriches our populations, uh, that both countries can cooperate in mining and telecommunications industries to deliver jobs. Uh, Nigeria's unemployment rate is not as high as South Africa's, but it is also still very high. And um, Suram Maposa said, we are two major economies on the continent. and It's important that we deepen economic ties, particularly in light of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. But the interesting sort of unsaid thing here is that while both have promised to be economic reformers, Soro Ramaphosa has done precious little, whereas Nigeria's president has, according to reporting, been engaging in some of the most interesting and radical economic reforms in Nigeria's history, at least in many decades. Uh, He's lifted foreign exchange trading uh, controls. He's scrapped a fuel subsidy, um, which was very expensive and popular. So that took real economic bravery. Um, And he's trying to get inflation and debt and slow growth all uh, uh, out of under control. Um, Sara, what do you take away from this? Well, you know, in a way, it's kind of embarrassing because from what you're saying, the the Nigerian president really does seem to be embarking on actions that we would recommend for the for this country, um, and it's quite brave given the the history that the economic history that uh, Nigeria has come from. And when when a, a leader gets rid of subsidies, then you know they're actually being quite serious because it's it's always ostensibly unpopular for you know initially. Um, we're doing nothing. Um, in fact, we're doubling down. I mean, we were talking this morning about uh, the new procurement bill, and it's like the old procurement bill on steroids. It's it's like Zondo said we must go for you know for value for money first and foremost as the most important criterion, and we're saying hell no. So first of all, we are not only not doing anything; we are almost going backwards for Christmas for whatever reason. And we're, assume it's ideology. And then there's something a little bit funny about the fact that they're having this discussion in New York, which is good. I'm glad better than not having it at all. But, you know, we come from the same continent. Why haven't we been having this discussion here? And I think the problem is that Cyril tries to sort of talk us up as somehow equal to Nigeria. And whereas once we were a greater economy, we are now a less economy than than Nigeria. And I think we, we keep trying to talk ourselves up as if we are something that the 
ANC has actually dismantled. Right, and it's also worth pointing out that uh, the president of Nigeria won election this year by a very narrow margin, only I think 5% ahead of his opponent, with something like 36% of the vote. Uh, Nigeria is far more politically fractious and divided. States are more complicated. It's got much bigger problems. And yet he's pushing through these real reforms. Rasul Ramaphosa, who sits with a comfortable majority in parliament, who remains in many ways the most popular president, uh, politician in the country, refuses to embark on any serious reforms because his commitment is so strong to ANC unity and ideology. Yeah. Um, and that is exactly why we're going nowhere at the moment. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's just ridiculous. We're not, we're not, it doesn't, I don't think we're being serious. Exactly. Um, and we have a lot to learn from other countries. In fact, I was looking at the Economic Freedom of the World report, which just brought out its 2021 numbers, I think, today. And uh, Nigeria is comfortably ahead of us in economic freedom rankings, which is uh, scandalous, to say the least. Mm. But um, let's move on to our very last story. And this is from the South African Human Rights Commission, which received a number of submissions, I think 600, more than 600 um, earlier this year, about the state of the provision of clean drinking water to residents across KZN in a variety of municipalities. Um, mostly rural municipalities, but also municipalities like Eteguini, uh, Harigwala municipality, um, uh, Utukela, King Chechwayo, Zululand municipality. So a mixture of ANC and IFP controlled municipalities. And the commissioner um, from, from the Human Rights Commission says that the rights of people living in these municipalities to clean drinking water has been violated. Uh, the impact on rights, livelihoods, and dignities of community is particularly aggravated in impoverished communities and vulnerable households, the impact on business results in undermining of employment. The Commission finds these challenges outlined by municipalities reflect poor planning management of resources, particularly in relation to non-revenue water and maintenance of infrastructure. And they have a number of suggestions to how to improve the situation, but most of them amount to spend the money properly, get rid of impediments, impediments to uh, building new water infrastructure and stop corruption. Um, easier said than done. Sarah, what what do you make of this? You see, this is this is the problem. The provision of water should be a policy issue for a government, not a not a right, because the 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 impediments to providing that right could be huge or insurmountable even. Here, most of the impediments, there are impediments in rural areas, and those are particularly the fact that a lot of communities sort of live scattered in, in very hilly terrain. So the it's very, it's not easy to put the, the infrastructure in to those areas. You, you know, you may be looking at less sophisticated infrastructure taps rather than full infrastructure. But the fact that at the heart of this is not just the infrastructure, which has not been maintained, so you're looking at probably corruption and incompetence, but the fact that the water is is unsafe, and that you, that goes entirely usually to incompetence first, and probably uh, corruption second. So it's it's a multitude of things. As I said, some areas will be hampered by virtue of where they are. Um, the others, yeah, we need. They need money, which will not fall from, you know, will not fall from trees. They'll have to wait for to be budgeted for in a certain year. But you also have to know that that money is going to be used by people who use the money wisely and competently. That's for a start. Then the water will become clean. Then it can be piped. So it's not a it's not a quick fix, and it probably depends on. Um, it, it does depend on whichever government is in charge of those municipalities, understanding that it actually needs the engineering and technical skills necessary 
to make a difference. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen, and there's nothing that the Human Rights Commission can do about it. I mean, they can take people, they can take the municipalities to court and all sorts of things. But if, if they're not doing it because they can't and they won't and they're unable, it's not going to change. Exactly right. All right. I think that is all for today. We hope you found the show interesting and that's a wrap. <laughs>